Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The odds of becoming a signed artist and having three number one albums? One in 100 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of this performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. You can follow me on twitter.com slash joykeys, and you can become a fan on Facebook. Just look up Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And now I'm on Instagram. Yes, tag me in a photo. You might win a prize. Today, if you were looking, I just offered a Starbucks gift card and a Dunkin' Donuts gift card, but you got to follow, you got to tweet, you got to tag, and you could be a winner. I give away books, I give away movie tickets, all types of things, so I encourage you to follow. As a matter of fact, today I'll be giving away a copy of my guest book, High Price by Dr. Carl Hart. So you want to follow and tag, and you can be a winner. I also want to say thank you. Thank you so much to all the listeners, supporters of the show, past 950,000 downloads of the podcast. Wow. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. I'm so happy that you are enjoying the shows. Hopefully you're learning something from the shows and sharing them with friends and family. So just wanted to say thank you. Well, today I am honored and a little nervous (laughs) to have my guest on. He really challenged me with his book, uh, High Price, Dr. Carl Hart. Um, He's been challenging a lot of people around the globe about drugs and addiction, how we treat addiction, the laws, and how we criminalize uh, the selling and the use of drugs uh, around the globe. Um, And today he has really challenged me because I had to read the book, and I was like, "Mm, really? No. Are you sure? Hmm. I know you have a PhD, but (laughs) good morning, Dr. Hart. Joy, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I really, like I said, was challenged by your book because uh, I personally have experienced with someone in my family, my father actually got addicted to crack. And I was like, what? What did you say you were addicted to? We didn't smoke in this house. We rarely had alcohol in this house. What the heck is going on? What are you doing? Snap out of it, you know? Um, And in your book, you know, you talk about these aberrations and these outliers, if you will, that are used by the media, are used by our government to, um, I guess, a fear tactics, really. Um, and also there's racism involved. And uh, But there were some things I just was like, mm, I don't know about that, Dr. Hart. I, I was afraid. I know people that said this happened. But I just want to say thank you for writing a book because I, I, I think everybody needs to be challenged every once in a while, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I thank you for reading the book. You know, I've been studying drugs now for about 25 years, and uh, I got into this business primarily because of the so-called crack epidemic. I wanted to 
solve that problem that faced our community, and I was uh, concerned, and so I tried to make a contribution. But then when I started to find out what the real deal was, uh, I became angry because I felt like I was lied to, too. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, let's just start at the beginning. Let's talk about the title of this book, High Price. My my interpretation, and let me t- tell me if this is wrong, there's a high price emotionally, and I just spoke about my emotions in dealing with drugs and addiction. There's also a high price of waste. Are, are we're wasting money on, I believe personally, how we're treating people that have drug addictions. We're wasting money on how we're criminalizing and, and the prison, the prison industrial complex. Talk to me, any of this correct? Is this what you were trying to uh, relate to people with the, the title high price? You you hit it on the head. You know, the high price is a play on all of those things. The high price is a play on not only those things that you said, but also even to drug users, they're paying a high price because there are many drug users who are sacrificed every year. We lose people from drug-related overdose deaths or other types of drug-related deaths that we don't need to if we just educate people properly and we think about this more um, from an objective perspective rather than a moralistic perspective. But the high price, too, is also the price that I paid as a black scientist coming from the hood trying to tell this story and then trying to remain uh, the person who I was growing up while trying to participate in white mainstream uh, America. And that's a difficult price that one has to pay in terms of who you become and who you are and the people who you leave behind. So high prices to play on all of that. Well, you, you shared a lot of yourself in this book. You were not just a scientist. You were Carl Hart, forget the Ph.D. And let me ask you, how did you overcome the fear to share so much because of your status, you had come from a certain place, and then you're here in this, you know, ivory tower. You could risk maybe losing something. How did you overcome that fear, or was there any fear? Well, you know, the thing is, it's like I, I lost friends. In fact, I lost my best friend recently, about a year ago. Um, I, you know, you lose people along the way, and people who are smarter than you, people who taught you things. And then I realized that, you know, the fear that I had was losing them. They're gone. And so now I don't, I don't have any fear, not like that, uh, uh, because uh, all I, ca- I fear right now are my children looking at me and thinking, you know, there, there was this huge social injustice going on during my time. And my children looking at me asking, damn, what did you do to make the world better? You know, so that's what I mm-hmm. fear more than anything. Yeah, I can agree. I can understand as a parent myself, you know, when I go and and when I lead ahead of my children, I'm I'm leading them someplace or trying to show them or lighting a way for them, you know, uh, I feel responsible for what they see, what they don't see, you know, and I feel that I need to leave some kind of legacy because I can't take the cash, you know, I can't take all the clothes or anything like that. So I can uh, I, don't, I don't I don't have any of that. So no. I don't have that. <laughs> you got it going on with your show. No, 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 no. <laughs> One of the things I appreciated was um, the arrangement of the book. I love the quotes you had at the beginning of each chapter. Um, and one of the chapters, chapter nine, is home is where the hatred is. And that was so poignant. I was, and I read that actual t- a couple times. I had to go back. Just home is where the hatred is. And then you talked about Gil Scott Heron. Talk to the audience about the connection, Gil Scott Heron and that phrase. 
you know, that, that, that's, this is really difficult to do because, you know, Gil Scott meant so much to me. And when I heard that song, uh, Home is Where the Hatred Is, it kind of put some language on some of the things that I had been dealing with after I had left home and went into the military. Um, and so Gil Scott Herring got me to start thinking more critically, uh, start to look at America in a way that was more critical. Uh, I knew some things was wrong in terms of race relations, in terms of how people, how poor people were treated, but it just didn't have the language. And then I started listening to him, reading things that he had written, um, and it just, it just put the language on it. And, and so he has a, he has a deep, Deep, deep place in my heart. Um, and in fact, I was just, I'm always listening to Gil Scott on my iPod and those sorts of things. So, uh, home is where the hatred is. It's like you love those people. And, uh, and, but by that same token, there are some real pathology that goes on and don't know how to change them. I don't know how to completely change them. And then by the same token, there's a lot of love that happens there at home and uh, a lot of sort of, uh, things that made sure that I was moved along to do well in life. So it's all of these ambivalent feelings come out in that song, Home is Where the Hatred Is. Yeah, because normally you hear Home is Where the Heart Is and you hear something positive. And so when I read that, you know, I just, it, it meant, like you just said, so many different feelings come up um, and, and struggles. Uh, let's start with the issue of why do people become um, and you bring so many things we can't even get into, but some of the things about which I really thought was interesting, how parents, children, because you share your personal story about your parents and their domestic violence situation, but you also shared how we have been being researched. People think things are new, but we have been being watched and researched and dissected for eons. People don't realize that, and I think people don't realize that your behaviors are not new, that you're like somebody else, maybe your neighbor or somebody across the globe, um, and yet you are different. So one of the things is um, parents. The number of words that you talk about middle-class parents share with their children versus poor parents. you want to elaborate on that um, issue? Yeah, there have been a number of studies that show that, you know, there, the, the poor families like the one from which I came, um, uh, the, the way you communicate with children might be different than the way that middle-class uh, parents communicate with their children, they may talk to them, they may uh, be more instructive verbally, whereas in the poor families like where I came from, there wasn't so many, so much verbal instruction. You were just showed how to do something and you didn't do it right. You might have gotten hit or something. And so the, the verbal behavior was certainly less. And then when you start to think about the, all the words or the lack there of words that you know as a poor child, now you're going into the school setting where words is important, they are, they are important, and you don't, you don't, you're not really prepared, and no one's really thinking about that sort of thing. But all of this research is showing how uh, poor kids have sometimes ten times, hundred times less words than uh, uh, kids from middle class, and, and they are already starting off behind in kindergarten. And so these things have a way of just getting worse over time, but people act as if um, they didn't start at this early stage. So I was trying to help people to understand the importance of making sure you verbally speak with your kids if they're going to be participating in mainstream. Now, you also talked about, though, the survival skills that poor children and also nonverbal 
a thing that you learned that you had to pay attention to nonverbal things. Talk about that a little because there's positive uh, aspects to that. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. You know, so uh, coming from a poor community like me and my family, one of the things that we learned was the importance of attending to people's nonverbal communications, not what they say, but you're watching their actions, their eyes, their body language, all of those things could really be a matter of life and death and be a matter of where your social status is. And so um, those things are obviously important and mainstream, but I think that uh, where I came from, it certainly served me really well in science and um, uh, the critical world of science where I'm at. And so um, there, something that might look like a, a disadvantage from one perspective actually can, poke, can, can be an advantage from another perspective. And so I tried to point this out so that people who came from communities or who come from communities such as mine, I, I was hoping that they were encouraged, inspired, and not feeling defeated just because their uh, vocabulary might be limited. But there were other things that they have that, will, that they could take advantage of. Definitely. And let's move into this issue of, you know, back, I mean, let's continue with this, why people are becoming addicted to drugs. Okay, so they don't have the skills, or maybe they have certain skills, and then you have domestic violence issues going on. Maybe you don't have as much money. Maybe your community, things are happening. You say these are not necessarily reasons that people become drug addicts. You yourself are not a drug addict. No, that's you know, absolutely right. That's absolutely right. This is I was trying to point out that, you know, people become drug drug addicts for a variety of reasons and we can't think of it as like somebody became a drug addict because they're poor. That's not why it happens necessarily, but that might be a role that might play a role for some people, but a lot of people become addicted to drugs because they have other psychiatric illnesses like depression, anxiety, anxiety, uh, schizophrenia, learning disorders, a wide range of psychiatric illnesses might play a role. In other cases, people may have just not learned the skills that are necessary to temper their behavior in any domain, including taking drugs. And so we have to, I mean, the thing I was trying to point out in the book, that the first thing that we really need is a careful assessment of the person to try and figure out what's going on with them. And then if we do that, we might be able to help them solve their drug addiction problem if they are, in fact, addicted. That's the key thing right there you just said, if they are, in fact, addicted, because what you discussed is that many people are not necessarily addicted to drugs. And you've done studies, uh, one of your studies using the money, uh, offering money versus uh, drugs to study participants. Very controversial. Even yourself, you discussed in the book how, you know, you were worried, like, you know, I'm giving people drugs, like, for free or whatever. You know, hey, this is, I'm, am I a drug dealer? Um, but you were trying to study, and many people chose to take the money when they were given smaller amounts of the drug. Can you talk, elaborate about this study that you did? Yeah, that study was based on, um, animal, on animal studies that showed that when animals are allowed to receive intravenous injections of cocaine or methamphetamine or something like that, they, they press a lever to receive these injections, and the animals will press the lever until they die in some cases. And so that was evidence, taken as evidence, that these drugs are so powerfully addicted that animals will kill themselves. But when you looked at those studies more carefully, you saw that the animals only had the lever in their cage. So they couldn't do anything else besides press the lever. Of course they're going to take the drug until they die. 
But when you put other things in the cage, like a sexually receptive mate or some sweet treats, some sugar water, or anything else in the cage, animals don't take the drug until death. So I thought that if we brought some crack cocaine users, they were actually addicts. They met the criteria according to the psychiatric sort of criteria. Uh, But when we brought those people into the lab and we gave them a choice between something as small as $5 and uh, a hit of their drug, crack cocaine, what we found was that they took the drug on about half of the occasions and the money on the other half of the occasion. But in later studies, when we increased the amount of money to $20, they never took the drug. They always took the money. This told us that drug-taking behavior, the choice to take a drug, is sensitive to environmental manipulations like alternative reinforcers. And so we, even when people are addicted, you can reach them. They can make rational decisions. They do make rational decisions. All of these things people said drug addicts couldn't do. But study after study showed that that's not true. What we thought of a drug addict is a caricature of a drug addict, and that's not reality. The reality is is that they respond to normal sort of events just like we do. Yeah, well, one of the things that that brings to my mind is who's funding your research? Because that slants, there's a bias. You know, you even yourself have been approached by certain, you know, uh, organizations and you turn them down and say, well, I really don't need to be involved with them because of their, you know, their biases. And there's also bias in the researcher, there's a bias in the participant, the, the, the environment, you know, the timeline, you know, all different things can bias a study and people are just believing the first thing they said. But it's also going back to what I said earlier. People believe what they want to believe. They uh, gravitate toward information that supports their views they already have. I think it's the few in between that really try to challenge their views and are okay and, and overcoming their fear, challenging their views. Even reading your book may be a challenge, you know, for someone. Um, but you, who's funding your research? You know, talk about that issue, I guess. You you really read the book, man. I, I am so impressed. <laughs> uh, you are a woman after my heart. Um, you read it carefully. I mean, the, all the things that you just said are so critically important for anybody listening. If, if they don't hear anything, I hope they heard that portion because it's critically important to understand who's funding the research. Most of the research in this area is funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Now, they have a particular slant, a particular bias. Their bias is really to investigate the bad things that happen related to drugs. They fund 90% of the world's research in this area. That's 90%. And that bias is to focus on the negative things that happen. So what gets published in the scientific literature, what gets published in textbooks, what gets published in the popular press is almost exclusively negative. And so that is a bias. It doesn't mean that what gets published is a comprehensive understanding of these things. That's not what happens. What what the public gets is this bias towards negative effects. And in the book, Mm -hmm. I try to show what this means for our understanding and how this hampers our ability to have a comprehensive understanding. Well, let's talk about, you know, we're running out of time, but let's talk about how can we treat people. 
Um, and you talk about a way to treat them that's controversial. You're just being so controversial, Dr. Hart. Um, can you expound <laughs> on your uh, <laughs> what you think we should be doing um, to help people who have uh, drug addictions if they really truly have a drug addiction? Yeah, so one of the things I want to make clear is that only about 10 to 20% of the people who use drugs have a drug addiction. But that has received, those people have received almost exclude, almost all of the attention. But that's okay. All right, let's just deal with how we treat people with addiction. The first thing, as I pointed out, that one has to do is have a careful assessment about why the person is addicted. Does the person have a co-occurring psychiatric illness? Do they have depression, anxiety, or, or one of those sorts of things? If you treat those sort of disorders, those other disorders, you tend to, the, the, the substance abuse problem tends to go away. If that's not the issue, maybe the person has, they don't have uh, many other attractive alternatives, and so they're engaging in this drug use as a result. Figure out what's going on. Are, are there economic issues? Do they, have, do they have a job? All of those sorts of things are critically important. Are they plugged into their community, to their society? Figure this out, because all of those things play a far bigger role than the drug itself. Also, what about the skill set? Do these people, have they learned how to be responsible in terms of any other area in their life? Are they, are they not doing well in their life? Well, you might not have a drug problem. You might have a different, types of, a different problem, and it's manifesting as a drug problem. But one has to do a careful assessment. But that's, that's in terms of treatment. But I think for the other 80% of 90% of the people who use drugs, the thing that I also suggest in the book is that we change the way that we regulate drugs. I have argued that we should decriminalize all drugs, that is, treat drugs just like a traffic violation. Uh, people uh, will maybe get a fine, but they won't go to jail. They won't get a criminal record. And if they don't get a criminal record, it increases the likelihood that they can get jobs and pay taxes in this society. So there are a number of things that I offer in the book, and so I hope they are helpful. Well, one of the things you also mentioned is that decriminalization happened in Portugal and that, you know, um, they, they did it there. Maybe we can do it here. So it's not like some new idea. You're not um, just pulling this out of your hat. You know, it, it has been done. Um, but, but, Dr. Hart, you want us to take every single drug addict okay, let me tell you, this drug addict hurt my mom or this drug addict left me and abandoned me as a child. This drug addict um, doesn't work. Um, how, why should I care about this drug addict when they've done so many negative things maybe to me personally or to someone I know or they messed up our neighborhood? Uh, talk to me. Why should I care? Well, you know, there are people in our society who have done a lot of bad things, whether they use drugs or not. I mean, we should care in part because uh, those people will eventually be back among us in our society if they have to serve a time, serve some time for the crime that they, they committed because if they committed a crime, of course, they, 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 there's a price to pay for that. And once they serve their time, they will be back among us. And so we want to make sure that we treat people well and we take care of the least among us because they are a part of our society. And if they are not contributing to our society, they might be playing a role that is negative or that it will be disruptive in our society. And we don't want that. So we want to help those who are among us to the best of our ability. And that way we want to make sure they are plugged in, they have a stake in this society. And if they do, it decreases the likelihood of them being disruptive in this society. 
Definitely. I mean, it's proven that people have more education, their health is better, they have better jobs. I mean, there's a, a jump from if you have a high school diploma, if you have a college degree. Um, it also, I think people who travel, who see the world, who read different things, you know, if you're a mathematician, maybe you should go see an art show. It may help how you see a math problem. You know, I think um, all these things are important. Um, I'm definitely going to be giving away a copy of your book, High Price. So, again, I encourage people to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter or become a fan on Facebook. And I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Hart, again, for writing the book, for challenging me, because, you know, I have emotional side, and it still makes me feel a little uncomfortable, some of the things you're saying, because I just want to shut down and just, like, get rid of that person, you know what I mean, and just don't deal I with do. them. But, um, I do. Uh, it, I, I, it, have it, um, <laughs> I have to tell you. I have to tell you, you know, uh, I have really enjoyed talking to you. You are, um, uh, you, 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 you do an excellent job, and you, I wish uh, that people were, uh, that, that they use you as a model. I know I'm certainly going to. Uh, because oh, uh, thank this, you. Is, this is precisely what we should do, just what you just uh, have just pointed out. It's like when we're uncomfortable, that cognitive dissonance is how we grow, and you are a beautiful example of that, and um, I am a fan now for life, so you got oh, me. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. We have a call. Let me just bring them in here. Uh, good morning. You're calling from 940. You have a question for Dr. Hart? Yes, I wanted to know, did you factor in trauma? to some of the reasons why people are probably drug addicted or users of drugs in your study. Yeah, so when you when you talk about trauma, that's what I meant, like some of the uh, trauma could be another one of those PTSD is so uh be another one of those psychiatric disorders that are uh driving that's driving the the substance abuse problem. Uh absolutely and um there's a a, a cat in in um Toronto, uh, I'm sorry, uh Vancouver uh Gabar uh, Mate, he, he wrote a, he wrote a book on this whole thing, and it's pretty famous now about the role of trauma and then substance abuse. So, absolutely, trauma is critically important. Thank you okay, so much for calling you. in. Yeah, in terms of trauma, a lot of times we say, "What's wrong with you?" But there's trauma models that say, "What happened to you?" Uh, there's a woman; she's famous for her um, trauma model. I can't remember her name right now, uh, but. The question is, what happened to you, as opposed to what's wrong with you, um, and, oh, and starting right. from that point. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hart, for coming on today. Good luck um, with your travels and the book. And, again, I'll be giving away a copy. You want to follow Dr. Hart. He's Dr. Carl Hart, or Dr. Carl Hart, on Twitter. Check him out. Challenge yourself. Read the book. Question what you've been thinking. Um, and share it with friends and family so that we can have a ripple effect around your community, around your state, and around the globe. Thank you so much, Dr. Hart. Thank you for having me, and um, I will be following you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much for everybody listening today. Again, follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Become a fan on Facebook. Tag me on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Stay tuned. I'll be talking with uh, black British actor David Ajala from ABC's Black Box in a couple minutes. I hope you guys have a wonderful Saturday. The odds of becoming a signed artist and having three number one albums? One in 100 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of this performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.